Hey, Brad. How are you doing? Good, Lee. How about you? I'm doing really well. It's roasting hot here in the office, and I can see you're in a nice tropical environment there, too. I purposely set it up to look like I'm <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for joining this one, recording another podcast with me. Our first one went down well, by the way. I've had a few really good comments from uh, past clients who've listened to to it and uh we have been trying to plan a walk on the beach for a little while because you've been telling me that you've been thinking a lot about this concept of motivation. So rather than we couldn't get to go for a walk on the beach today. So I thought we'd just record the conversation straight away with uh, with no, no preamble, no prep. So what have you been thinking about with regards to motivation? So look, this is really the focus again is on leading, not managing, right? That's yeah key and so when i'm talking leading it is that context of what do people do to create environments that bring out the best in people so that's the premise and in the conversations we've had in the past i think we always accept that trust is a starting point for leaders uh, because people won't willingly follow and commit where trust isn't in place right yeah so this is the underpinning element uh, but for today, it's going beyond trust. It's that motivational component, like what is the leader's role in creating an environment that is motivating for the individuals? Um, and so that got me going back to uh, some of the stuff that sits in my memory banks around it essentially when motivation is being considered it's looked at from two perspectives. There's that extrinsic motivation, which appears to be the stuff that's driven from the outside. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the int intrinsic motivation, which is comes from within. And again, all the conventional wisdom and theory suggests that um, intrinsic motivation is much more sticky and that when individuals are operating from an internal desire for whatever personal reason it is, they're more likely to withstand, you know, the pressures and things like that. So in the modern context, they're more likely to be more resilient. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so that, again, pushed me back to my past. And I remember a guy called Frederick Hertzberg, who for his time used the language of... Um, he saw that uh, there were two factors that created satisfaction for humans in their workplaces. One he labeled as the hygiene factors. And the hygiene factors are very consistent with Maslow's bottom two uh, on his hierarchy, these uh, physiological well-being and um, safety elements. Uh, and then Hertzberg suggested there's the other layer to it, which he described, he just used the term motivators because he didn't consider that the hygiene factors were motivators at all. He considered they were things employers and bosses had to have in place just to get their people functioning. Um, and the motivators, when you read Hertzberg's work, were consistent with, the upper three elements in Maslow. So the whole thing around belonging, self-esteem and self-actualization. And 
if we split that then to extrinsic intrinsic, the bottom two are very consistent with extrinsic and the top three are very consistent with intrinsic. So are we good for now on that? As a I'm, with you, I'm with you so far. I'm, I'm writing a couple of notes here. I'll just throw, I don't want to derail your thought process, but I thought that was interesting. I had a conversation this morning about uh, an organization that engagement surveys come back um, pretty low scores on engagement and particular psychological safety. And when you start talking about hygiene factors, this psychological safety concept is often, I don't know, it seems to be talked about as a, um, a thing we need to start thinking about. But I think, I mean, it, people, lots of people are thinking about it. But when you talk about hygiene factors being physiological and and you know physical safety, I think this this idea of psychological safety is probably a hygiene factor in that context that you've just described. Yeah. Um, and then, so that led me to thinking a lot more about um, the modern workplace, and it struck me that much of modern motivation in the workplace is focused on extrinsic factors or extrinsic satisfiers. Um, so there's bonuses and there's rewards and there's, you know, um, gifts and crisp staff Christmas parties and all of those kinds of things. Uh, and we become very good at, and, and the other elements around that are just the basic hygiene factors of a person's workplace now uh, organizations, either because they choose to or because they kind of have to to avoid being, um, you know, taken over the coals, they have to provide good, healthy, safe work environments. And those yeah. run across the physical safety now more and more through the mental health of their, their workers, right? But all of that is done from the, as I look at it, all of that's done from that very external thing. This is what we do to externally keep you comfortable and happy. And so I looked at the modern workplaces and I'm hearing so much wherever I go, especially now that COVID has passed and people are having to be considered coming back into their offices because their companies are now saying, yeah, that's over. And corporations and their HR people are really struggling with what they're now seeing is the psycho, psych, psychological health of their employees. And so it seems to me that in a time when we talk more and more about resilience, less and less of it seems to be apparent. Yeah. Um, and as you know, my, my trips to Sri Lanka have informed my thinking a lot in recent years. And I got to thinking, why is it that in an environment where we have everything really at our fingertips, why is there such, and Kurtzberg used to refer to it as dissatisfaction, why is there such a high level of dissatisfaction when there is so much to be satisfied with? Um, and so then when I think about the Sri Lankan scenario, that for them it's speaking out an existence, right? Um, uh, if we used our language here, they, work, they wake up every morning with a very clear purpose. And the purpose is quite simply to get enough today to feed us today. Yeah many of them and so they don't have time to dwell on am i feeling anxious or have i got 
mental health issues around the corner and thing. And look, in saying this, I really don't want to demean the mental health. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is a real issue for us in this in this culture. But I just want to draw the parallel that when people have other things to focus on, um, then some of the issues we are struggling you know, struggling with here don't appear to become as significant in those environments. Um, and so that got me to thinking, because you do a lot of leadership work, right? Yeah. And your programs are very strong in the human component of leadership. When, you're, when you have conversations about motivation, what are leaders being encouraged to consider in those conversations? Okay, so um, I think what I often encounter is in the organizations that I've worked with, they're, they're often technical, not, not necessarily technology organizations, but the people in leadership positions have often come through a, a highly technical, whether it's engineering or, um, or IT or finance or, you know, a very... Um, task-oriented, solution-focused, analysis mindset type background. Mm -hmm. So often when we're thinking about motivation on mass, the, the conversation, the focus is often we need to get the KPIs right. Yeah. We need to um, make sure that we're measuring the right things and so on. I, I think there's a place for that. There's certainly a place for that. Mm -hmm. But if that's happening in a vacuum, what I mean by that is if there's no clear sense of direction, purpose, um, what is it we're trying to achieve? Why is it important that we want to achieve that? Why, as a staff member, would I care about this bigger picture? Maybe I care because I just want to feed my family. Maybe I care because I'm trying to get career growth. Maybe I care because... I want to make a difference and this company is working on, you know, future energy solutions, whatever that is. Um, it can be lots of different things, but I think one of the key contributors, I guess, that, that sometimes is missed is the importance of clarity to people in terms of motivation. So the Daniel Pink work around uh, in a book, I think you wrote called Drive, yeah, so people are motivated by making progress on meaningful work. People want to be feel good at something. And if that if that being good at something happens to be something that's also got some connection to a higher intent, higher purpose, then all the better. So I guess the two components there is this is probably where the the KPIs and the meaning come together. So number one, make my work meaningful in some way by helping me to understand how it contributes to a bigger picture that I might care about. Mm -hmm. Then number two, show me that I'm making progress against that meaning. We're getting there. We're getting closer. We're, we're achieving things that matter. And that's probably where more the mechanics or the, the KPIs as a, as a measure of progress rather than a stick to hit people with, right? Yeah. Um, but still, there's a play. I think there's a place for that when you think about 
if I'm a sprinter, I'm trying to get a faster time, measuring myself against the time and striving for a faster time. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. And it can be quite motivating but without the bigger context of I want to be a sprinter because I want to be the fastest person in the world and I want to win in the Olympics or, you know, we, we want to change the shape of the way energy is delivered here in Australia. And that's why we need to implement this new IT system or build, grow in this market, in this region, or we need both. We need that meaning and we need the measurement as well. That's right. Yeah. So I think that's generally accepted is that you can't, it's not one or the other. My concern, if there is, and no, I'm not going to head. I do have a concern that we are very focused on the elements around the KPIs and all of that, that um, and so we do the things that we do in order to tick those boxes. So when a company says we are committed to safety, when you look at their actions, they're actually not committed to safety per se. They're committed to having zero days of um, leave due to you know, some workplace incident. Yeah. Um, and in order to achieve that, it actually gets turned on its turns upside down because they'll then countenance some terrible behavior just to hide the fact that there was an incident because the KPI has become more important than the stated aim of the KPI. Yeah. Okay. Have you seen real examples of this kind of yeah, um, backfiring of KPIs? Yeah, yeah, I see it in manufacturing a lot where, yeah, it'll be things like we won't carry spare tools in our inventory because that affects our the, um, financials in our books. Yeah. And so you working the machine We'll have to find a way to retrofit things to that machine till we can get to a stage where we've got what we consider satisfactory budget to go and buy that piece of equipment. And so the individual machine operator is working in now a much more elevated level of danger because the company doesn't want to spoil its accounting look. So what you're talking about there is is sometimes the impact of maybe a well-intended metric actually having a detrimental effect on the the outcome that we're trying to achieve. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. and it happens because what's being rewarded, right? Um, is a company rewarding a, an operator who steps up and says, this machine is dangerous and we need this part to make it work effectively. Now, the, the individual who does that, do they get a pat on the back and thank you very much for bringing that to our attention and here's the part, let's fix it straight away? Or does that individual supervisor say, mate, I know we can get by with, with it a little bit longer because the boss doesn't like us pulling stuff out of inventory if, we don't, if he doesn't think we have to, right? But the other thing that struck me in what you were saying about Pink's work was that, so you mentioned two of the elements, but there's the third element, which is autonomy. Yeah. And autonomy goes to the heart of control. And in a lot of work that's done on what, what helps people feel uh, good about what they do is the extent to which they are in control of what they do. Yeah. And so if the work is meaningful, 
and I'm gaining the skills, et cetera, to do it exceptionally well, then the measure of that is, do you lead me to just get on with it? And the extent to which you do that then becomes fulfilling. An interesting one in terms of the example that you used, you know, you could, you could say, could, it, could a company take it a step further and Brad is empowered and has autonomy to go buy that tool or replace that where, where it has an impact on safety. Um, you have autonomy to act on that, uh, even not just seek permission to act on it, right? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, there'll be complexity in that and there's a lot of considerations because I guess if it's an interesting challenge, how do you balance autonomy and how do you get autonomy in uh, the direction that the organization really needs people to, to go in? Yeah. Particularly when organizations get bigger. So look, the theoretical answer to that, and um, you know, it'll work some of the time, it may not work all of the time, I don't know, because it doesn't get tested often enough. But the, yeah, the theoretical answer to that is, if I have made a real good effort at employing people who buy into the values of our business, and then providing I'm satisfied that I've given them the skills to be able to do the tasks of the roles that they're here to, or that they already come with the skills. So if the values are right and the competencies are right, then I can trust that they're going to make calls that are good judgments. Yeah, you remind me of uh, the conversations I've had with another colleague, Rob, about um, the military approach to to people who they, they would prefer somebody to make a decision than to make no decision at all yeah uh i think how does he put it you should reward acts of commission and uh not reward or punish acts of omission so meaning if somebody's acted with good intent in line with the higher purpose and that action didn't go to plan or it didn't work well, it still should be acknowledged. Yeah, you made a decision and you acted in, in the best interest of what we're trying to achieve here. Let's talk about what we can learn from that. Rather than somebody holding back and, and not making a decision or not taking an action for fear of it going wrong and um, yeah. you know getting into trouble. But I think what you're talking about there is an interesting word motivation, isn't it? And again, you, we're probably dancing between the hygiene factors and the and the ex, when you talk about motivation, we're talking about how do you leverage, you know, get uh, discretionary effort and, and a, bit, a bit extra. And so people are really happy and productive. But a lot of what we're talking about, I reckon, is actually hygiene. So having a culture where I can call out a safety issue without fear of getting smacked back into my box and told to carry on, that's... That sounds like more of a hygiene factor, but it would also, if I live in a culture like that, if I work in a culture like that, I'm going to be more motivated and happy and you're probably going to get more out of me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess that's, yeah, that's for me is the challenge that, um, so I think I told you I'm reading that book, Kim, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, Robert Kipling's Kim. And there was a little line in it that resonates with this conversation. I can see it from here. It says, the hows matter very little in this world. The whys are everything. 
And so that brings me to the intrinsic element. And in a conversation with a colleague on earlier this week, like I, when I was thinking this through, I just had this assumption that people came with the, the why in their own mind. Why am I doing what I'm doing, right? And as my mate said to me, he said, no, Brad, that's not always the case. Sometimes people are doing what they're doing and they don't know the why, but a good leader will help them see it. And once they see it, then they'll get it and they'll commit to it. But don't expect them to come with it necessarily. So that was a good, a good wake-up call for me that um, if a person isn't displaying a commitment to the purpose, I shouldn't assume that they should have known it in the first place. It's my job as the leader to have communicated and then inculcated it into the way they see us operate. Yeah. And so for me, I look around me and I'm not at all convinced that leaders themselves have given enough thought to why do we do what we do beyond making profits or beyond hitting our KPIs. And because of that, the conversations they have with their people are very rare in regard to, do you know why we do what we do? And so when, when you hit a little hurdle, you can go back to that, that core element and maybe that'll give you a little bit more energy to keep going. Maybe that'll encourage you to, to blast through. And as you know, a lot of my work is with not-for-profits, so I see it there a lot because those people come into these environments intending to do good, but they run out of, they run out of energy really fast. Yep. And they run out of energy not because they've lost sight of the thing that drove them, it's because the thing that drove them is no longer part and parcel of what they're doing because no one's helping them with that. I think that's an interesting one because when we talk about the why, there's the organizational level why, yeah, which is the, the kind of big lofty. And I agree with you. Often it appears that that is, that is often done as a branding exercise, you know, a marketing type why. This is what we, this is the why to the market um and then once that's satisfied it maybe can often fall behind a little and, and we lose connection with that bigger purpose because i think people get into the habit as i was saying earlier analytical mindsets we want to solve the problems mm. right we want to get our hands dirty and what's the strategy and what, what do we need to do to in this market or that system or and that's kind of so it's an easier conversation, even though it's more complex, and that's the real work that needs to be done to achieve yeah. whatever the why is, right? We love it. We love wrestling with all these challenges and so on, and it's very easy for us to slip into that mode of dealing with what's in front of us and losing sight of that bigger picture where we're going. But importantly, to your point about what you've observed in the not-for-profits, I think it goes, it's much more subtle, the importance of why, than the big corporate goal as well. So if you and I are working together, for me to simply communicate to you, hey, Brad, I can say to you, hey, Brad, I need a, a report on Thursday with this information in it. Can you do it for me? Or I can say to you, hey, Brad, I need this report 
with this information in it on Thursday because I've got a presentation on Friday to the board and they've got to make a decision about whether we go this way or that way. So it's really going to help me if I've got confidence in my recommendation. Mm. Totally different feeling to you. Yeah. Between yeah. those two. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a why because we're trying to change the future of energy or because we're trying to, you know, it, it's the a couple of other things that I wanted to say about that. A couple of other things happen. So one, you're feeling like you're making a contribution to something that's not just putting some of the data in a, into a report, right? You're helping me. You're yeah. helping me be successful in a context that is quite an important one. So straight away, maybe if we've got trust, like you said before, if we've got a good working relationship, maybe you're going to think, I'm going to make sure this data is rightfully, right? Mm -hmm. Because I know he's going to be standing in front of the board and this decision is actually going to affect us, number one. So I'm maybe slightly more motivated. The other thing is autonomy. If I have asked you to go get this data, put it in this report, and you can't, for whatever reason, get that data, then you're going to come back to me and you're going to say, I couldn't get that data, Lee. What do you want next? Right? This hmm. is, if you go away, you can't get that data and you think, why did Lee want that data? Ah, he wants to have confidence in that recommendation. What else could I put in this report that might give him that confidence? Yeah. What could I go and find? Maybe it's not that data or maybe there's a portion of data that's really important and another portion that's less important. So I'll structure it that way. So suddenly now, because you know why I've asked you for this, you're able to make some decisions and be a bit more agile in your approach to the work. And you, you, can, you can deliver something that's kind of got your stamp on it. Yeah. And I think that, Lee, as you were describing it, what it put me in mind of is that if you're going to delegate that task to me, and you have absolute faith in my ability to do that task well, and you have absolute confidence that I'm going to come at it with from the right perspective, then you probably don't need to give me a lot of data or a lot of instruction. Yep. You really need to say to me, Brad, I'm presenting to the board in a couple of days. Um, obviously, this presentation is about the work we're doing and why it adds value. So with that as the premise, can you go away and create something for me, right? Um, now, you haven't given any indication of the data that I should be looking at or not be looking at. Now, you've totally left it to me. And if I'm the right person for the job, I'm going to come back with whatever it was. because I don't have to come back to you and say, look, I couldn't find that piece of data. You've actually given me an open sheet. And it reminds me, I know you don't particularly like mentioning all corporate names, but and, and I would have mentioned in the, in the conversation we had on the last podcast, I'm pretty sure. You remember I mentioned about Nordstrom's, a company, yeah. in, and their, their underlying premises at all, at all times use your best judgment. Right. And the reason they're able to say that is because they do such an upfront load in making sure that the people they employ are very committed to the core values that they espoused at Nordstrom. I, I should check, I only ever think of it when I'm having these conversations to see if Nordstrom's even exist anymore, um, because there's no guarantee they do. But at the time that they were around and they were functioning very highly and had, were always getting great scores on employee engagement and employer of choice and all that kind of stuff. That was the base premise from which they 
they brought people into the business. Are you the are you the right fit for our business? We know you can pick up the competencies that you need along the way, uh, and you will because you value what we do here. And because of that, we're trusting you and we're saying, use your best judgment. And it goes back to the comments you made about Rob and his you know, military thing. Yeah. That if we trust you, then you're going to make decisions. And if it turns out to be a, you know, not the best decision possible, well, we'll still learn from it, right? And if an interesting one, Brad, in terms of I've been doing a, a bit of work recently with a couple of startups much earlier uh, in the life of a business. Lots of pressure, you know, financed by in, independent investors uh, who are, you know, really the, the leaders of these organizations are on the hook to deliver and deliver quickly. So it's an interesting one because, um, you know, how much autonomy can you stomach in an environment like that, I guess, is the question that comes to mind. Because the the uh, the boundaries or the, you know, the, the margin for error is a lot smaller compared to a massive multinational, right? So it's an interesting one. And how do you, what would you say about that? If you and I were starting a business and we go off, to uh to a bunch of wealthy individuals and say hey finance this and they we get i don't know 10 million bucks or whatever it is to go build our piece of software or or whatever we've got a a hundred people um how much autonomy do you want to give them okay so this is it's using <laughs> the hypothetical for me the lived experience may be quite different i'm sure but here it is that i would want to expend inordinate amount of energy in finding those people who are going to get become part of my business. That would be yeah. where effort would be invested because I'd be bringing them on with the understanding that when you join us, you join us with the, all of the autonomy we can possibly afford to give you. Why? For no other reason than I haven't got time. We're a startup. I'm going to have all this other stuff that I got to be focusing on. And the last thing I can afford to do is to be checking in with each of you yep. for the, the aspects that have been delegated to you. So if I find myself as one of the you know, two or three leaders in that organization, feeling very nervous about delegating a task to a particular individual, then I would want to be asking myself, why have we put ourselves in this situation? But understanding that you can't always get everything you want, right? And recognizing, okay, so with this individual, I'm a bit nervous about this. What do I learn from that? And we've got to put steps in place right now. So I monitor it, but that's not the way I want it to continue. And so what's the development cycle that I need to start putting in place for this individual so that as soon as possible, they're free to fly on their own? Yeah. Interesting. I'm also thinking about the importance of the team, the leadership team in this in this scenario i guess where did my mind go my mind went to it's actually it takes quite a, it would take quite a lot of self-management i think to stay operating at the right level when the stakes are high i think we've talked about it before on one of the other podcasts you know people me included can tend to want to control yeah and i feel safer if i know what's going on 
at every, at every detail. But to your point, in an environment like that where we're all sprinting, I don't have time to know what's going on. And actually, I'll end up slowing things down if I'm not careful. And the other element is that when you said it just then, I I realized that my thinking is that you only feel safe safer for the short term. Once that's passed, you're left realizing, if you think about it, shit, if that happens again, we're going to have to go back there. Yeah. Uh, and nothing to change this change it. So it's that definition of insanity. I want it to be different the next time I'm there, but I will have done nothing to enable that. And even as you're talking about that, I just immediately went to my the the analogy as it relates to raising children, right? There are so many times that it's expedient to do the task for the child. And my boys never learn to learn mow a lawn because it was expedient for me to mow it myself. Yep. And now, you know, they can't even start a bloody lawnmower if they have to. Uh, but you've done a great job, Brad. I've met your kids and you've done a great job. If they can't mow a lawn, that's okay. There's a whole <laughs> lot of other good stuff in there. That's just me being selfish. None of them are offering to come and mow my bloody lawn. <laughs> but I think, you know, to, to the point around teams... As we're talking, I'm seeing the kind of work that we do helps leadership team members look out for each other in relation to this kind of behavior, right? So if we're in that hypothetical organization that I'm talking about, and we, you and I have got a really close relationship, and we've got a really, maybe we've got a leadership team of five or six people, and we've invested in the trust, and we've invested in clarity between us and we've agreed that we're going to help each other lead effectively if you see me diving in to things that i shouldn't be diving into because you know that it's not going to be effective in the short or the long term and we have a, a, a good strong relationship between us then you can step in and say hey lee you probably don't need to be getting involved in that so you know let's, let's zoom out a bit and let's mitigate the risks of catastrophic mistakes but people yeah. need to grow and learn and and we need to give them that that space and help me understand how much space is enough space and when do i shorten the rope and when do i lengthen it if i have to make all those decisions myself that's an awful lot of pressure yeah on yeah. an individual so i think this idea of how do this when, when we work with teams getting them talking about and thinking about how are we communicating with each other and what are the conditions that we create as a, as the most senior leadership team in this business such that we can have the conversations we need to have, help each other be the best possible leaders we can be without feeling offended, defending our turf, um, you know, overly concerned with my, I'm reaching my KPIs, so you know, if there's problems over there, that's your problem, not mine. I'm getting rid of that kind of stuff. Um, I think that I'm rambling a bit now, but that team in that investment in team, I think, is really helpful to mitigate the risk of any individual leader operating in ways that aren't effective, operating in ways that are removing autonomy and re and reducing motivation. Yeah. Yeah, if you think about it, every business that gets started 
is a result of someone or a couple of people, whatever the number is, having an idea that they can add value in the business space that currently isn't being delivered, right? It's, there's always yeah. this idea that I've got, we've got something to offer that, that is of value. It's, for some people, it is about we can make a, a mantra out of it, but the starting point is we have an idea that is different. Uh, what I observe in the world of business is that sooner or later, even the guys who originated that idea have forgotten that's where they came from. Right. It's about how much money are we making and, um, you know, which, which big clients have we been able to capture and all that. And it's very rare for any of them to, I've been in these meetings, very rare for any of them to say it until I say it. So remind me again why you guys started this business. Right. Nice. And then it's the conversation from there goes to uh, what was what was great about that, right? Well, it actually made a difference. It was something unique, blah, blah, blah. And then they can have conversations about how do they keep that alive. So for me, this all came back to my, obs again, I, I, rather than as a question, I'll make a statement on it that I just don't believe leaders are doing enough to help their people see the intrinsic value in whatever shit job they're doing, right? It can be the crappiest job there is to do. It's that job when you're delegating it to someone, you go, mate, I'm sorry. This is <laughs> someone had to do and today you drew the short, right? If the job doesn't have some intrinsic value to it, then you've got to question why we're doing it. Because if you work hard enough, you'll find every job has, so again, without mentioning names of organizations, there was you know, a very successful organization as it still is today, where part of their orientation program was to ensure that no matter which department from the organization you came, you were going to be part of, whether it be IT, whether it be fundraising, whether it be research, et cetera, et cetera, each of those people had to come to that orientation program having asked their boss, what is the value that our team adds to the yeah. organization in helping these people who we're here to help? And so the IT people was obviously, it was, a, it was an organization that leverages technology very well. The accounts people was very clear, you know, we're the people who make sure the funding is here so that that device can be made um, for the people running trading. It didn't matter who it was. In the end, they were all connected to this thing that we are here in the end to help an individual, a family, a child, whoever it is, benefit from our device. Yeah. And in that benefit, they will experience a life that they could not have experienced without it. Um, and the leaders in that organization were charged with, and it's that, I think it was, um, who was the guy who did the strength finders stuff? Um, I've just forgotten the name now. Um, but the guy, he talked about a leader should work to their strengths. Yeah. Um, and in that, one of, the, one of the recommendations that was made was catch your people doing something right. Nice. And it was, and the question would often be asked of a boss, when was the last time you acknowledged or complimented one of your team on doing something right? And if the answer wasn't yesterday, the person asking the question would basically, the, 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 
the taut line to them was, ah, so none of you people have done anything good for the last few days. And the boss said, of course they have. Well, no one, no one's heard about it. So they were being encouraged constantly to... I can jump in there, Brad. There's, there's so many thoughts going through. I want to catch that latest one. That, I, that That's an interesting one. It relates back to this idea in a military context of um, acknowledging errors of commission and not puni- uh, sorry, and punishing errors of omission. So often the acknowledgement comes from a result. We won that business. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we did a great job over here because our engagement scores are fantastic or whatever. And it, I think an interesting thing to ponder from a leadership perspective is how often am I acknowledging and affirming people's approaches regardless of the outcomes that they generate which is an interesting so there's a really interesting book called thinking in bets by a lady called annie duke highly recommend it she talks about this tendency in poker playing poker Mm -hmm. Um, she called she calls it resulting so if i if i make a decision to uh, bet everything on my hand in poker I may still lose all my money, even though that was a great decision. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, somebody giving me feedback on my poker playing should say to me, that was a fantastic decision. You made the right call. You just happened to lose all your money. Yeah. (laughs) But what often happens is, oh, you lost all your money. That that was terrible. And vice versa, same is true, right? I I might make a bad decision and win the game. Mm-hmm. And people go, oh, that was a great decision, Lee. Well done. We've won that business. Well done. We won that sales. Hang on a minute. To your point earlier, have we done this in a way that actually lives up to our values around safety, for example? Or is that business that, that we won taking us in the right direction over the long term or, mm-hmm. or not? And so really focusing attention not only on outcomes, but also on the process that we go through to reach those outcomes and uh, acknowledging when we're doing them well. Yeah. And look, in that illustration you just used from the book on the poker thing, what struck me, so there's two things. Firstly, uh, when we're giving that feedback, primacy is often forgotten in this. That is, how soon after the event does the individual get the feedback? And we know that primacy is critical in stickiness. That is, if I'm getting feedback on an event and I'm getting it immediately after the event, then whether that feedback is you did it well or you didn't, it's gonna it's gonna stick with me because in terms of synapse and it's all it's all current, right? But often when you say we get our uh, the survey results and the survey result says in this area you've done well, all we can do is pat ourselves back in the general. Right? There is no specific thing that we can say at that moment that that was what yeah. you did. Yeah. That's one. Number one is leaders must get better at providing feedback, both developmental and affirming, as close as possible to the time. And more than 24 hours is too late, right? Essentially. The second is in that story about the poker was. An objective observer would have little or no trouble saying to the person, that was a bloody good hand, you 
you did the right thing, you made all the right decisions, and look, you lost the money this time. But on the law of averages, if you keep making decisions like that, you're going to be okay. But if I'm that player's partner and they've just lost all our money, that becomes a whole different possibility, right? Because now two, is, two of us have to manage our emotions in that experience. Um, as a leader, I'm in a position where I can objectively stand back. It can be quite easy for me to provide affirming, constructive feedback. But the minute a part of me is embedded in that, which is more often than not, then the challenge becomes how do I provide feedback so that it's constructive and developmental? And this, the- where, this is where I think the work that we do with leadership teams around elevating levels of trust to the point that we can have these really tough conversations you know we can work through the the entanglements the emotional attachments and things together um and and get to that point of objective mature discussion and learning and decision making when it you know it it would be difficult it would be incredibly difficult in that scenario you just you just lost our money my money was in that as well and that was a decision you made brad and I, you know, yeah. it's not nice. I love the challenge because we don't live in uh, in a fairy tale, right? Somebody's going to get annoyed about that. But I think this is why it's so important, from a leadership perspective, for leadership teams to invest in building those high levels of trust with each other, so that you can articulate your 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 feelings. You can um, be forgiven. You can forgive. You can really go into a decision-making process like that without somebody feeling completely attacked and criticized. I had an interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago. So I was flying to Perth to run a gig a couple of weeks ago, and I watched a documentary about the art world and how it's completely been um, now controlled by money. And therefore, money has decided what is good art and what isn't good art for many many years now so we're getting a very narrow view of what good art is because it's the view that a few people at the top want to pay lots of money for um this was the the documentary one of the things that struck me in that documentary was somebody was talking about art degrees and how they're moving in directions she thinks aren't very good for the health and the diversity and the creativity within the art world. She said it with, with one exception. And that exception is what they call the crit process. So in the crit process, if you and I are doing an art degree at one of these top universities, on a regular basis, you have to put your artwork up in front of all of your peers. And we say what we want to say about it. Yeah. Brad, I'm sorry, it looks a bit rubbish. (laughs) Those colours, whatever. I don't understand it. Real, you know, obviously it'd be positive and negative, but it's a really harsh. And I sat in, uh, my best mate did an architecture degree. And I used to go do my homework in his department because it was a beautiful environment. I did a maths degree. But I'd sit in the architecture department and one one of these occasions he invited me to his crit. So he had to put his work up on the wall 
He's got 20 people, his peers, lecturers, and they're all just ripping it apart. Mm. And because I, I was on my way to run this gig with an exec team over in Perth, I thought, God, wouldn't it be interesting if you could get an executive team to the point where once a quarter or once a month, they could have a crit. Mm. So the, I don't know, the chief growth officer stands up and says, here's what I've been up to over the last quarter. Um, go for your life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, have, and have a really robust conversation and dialogue and real challenge in that conversation to the point in service of that chief growth officer having a much better approach, strategy, moving forward because it's because it's been really robustly discussed rather than everybody being on you know tender hooks worrying about upsetting each other and all this stuff so i I posed it to this team i said i'd love to get to the point with this team where we can implement a crit on a regular basis and they loved it but they also got a bit scared yeah yeah okay a couple of things uh so if i go back um to you've done something and i yeah i'm questioning uh why you did it and and it's resulted in a bad yeah not great outcome whatever i wish i could have been better at this as a leader but more and more i think if as a leader i'm in that situation and you lee have done something i trusted you to do it and i had every faith in you doing it and you've done it but it didn't go well before I do anything, I would love to be better at asking questions. Yeah. I would love to ask you, what we, because you already know it's cocked up, right? I'm not bringing you news. Um, and so I would love to be in a position to be able to say to you, Lee, before we look at the result, because we, we both know the result didn't go the way we'd like to, let's just talk about your thinking behind that. And in doing that, it might be, again, like, your comments regarding the military and things like that, we may discover that there was actually nothing wrong with your thinking. And that with that, with that thought process, I would have done the same thing. And so now where through that, can we find the little thing, the little element that caused it to go skew if? So we're not throwing the, you know, uh, the baby out with the bathwater. We're going, the bulk of that process was sound, but now, now that we've, now that we've got away from going, oh, that was a, you know, lost a lot of money there, whatever, but trying to figure out what the hell went wrong. We're in a better position to say, okay, so this is the thing that, and we paid dearly for it. Let's consider that an investment uh, to learn that dilemma. So that's for me is one of the, if I was working today with more with leaders, I would really be wanting to encourage them to avoid making statements and judgments, ask questions instead. Yeah, and that, so that's, a, that's one of those things that I think most people, if you ask them, if is that the way a leadership, an effective leadership team would operate, they'd probably say, yeah. And then if you ask them, do you operate that way? They'd probably say no. <laughs> because it's difficult to do, right? It's difficult to, to put our own egos aside, to, to breathe through that um disappointment or feeling let down or all of this human stuff that that happens to us and actually engage at that level i think that's a really and work needs to be done 
to cultivate individual self-awareness and collective trust and communication in order to be able to reach that point that you're talking about. Yeah, and it goes back to your poker incident, right? It's very easy in the theory where there is no emotion involved and there is no loss and there is no heat and whatever else. Yeah. But in the lived experience, and I was only re reminded of this the other day, you know, there's a lot of people used to have them on their desk. There'd be these, this little thing that sat on a desk of about a half a dozen silver balls hanging off fishing yeah. wire and you'd hit one and they'd go, right? Newton's and, cradle. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yeah. And depending on how far back you pulled this first ball would determine how far the last one went, right? But all the others absorbed a bit yeah. along the way, right? And it was the, the compounding energy or whatever that then shot the thing out. And the guy I was talking to said, that's a little bit like it the way it is in the world of business. The big boss comes down, he gives my boss a kick in the ass, you think my boss has absorbed it, but he's passed it along. And, and they've each passed along. By the time it gets to me at the end of that chain, I end up going for the loop. <laughs> I thought, yeah, okay, that it's that thing about we know what would make for a better outcome, but how do, how do we stop ourselves from going with our guts or with the emotion that right? Yeah. And so that brings it right back to the beginning. It's um, I'm really interested in encouraging leaders, and I'm doing a bit of this at the moment because I'm now focused on it, to look at what is the intrinsic value to your people in what they do. And so this week I'll work with a group and I challenged the, the manager to come up with and this is a group that provides education for disadvantaged people. And clearly part of the reason these people are disadvantaged is they didn't do well with education if they were even had access to it in the way we do. And now, yeah, in their late teens, some of them are in their 40s, uh, uh, being encouraged to by the um, government agencies to sign up for these programs to give themselves a chance of and this woman, when we were talking about it, she said, I said, so what's the point? And she rattled on for a bit and she said, well, Brad, in the end, it's about freedom of choice. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, an education, educated person has choices. People don't. I said, now, isn't that powerful? I said, when was the last time your people were helped to understand that every day doing what they're doing, here is what they're yeah, they're attempting to achieve. She said, she said, oh, to my shame, I have never even thought about this. We, we well, have and I think to be fair and kind to all of the leaders that we've worked with and this person, um it's it's in my experience when I'm standing in front of of people in these positions, it's not ill intent. No, it's no, just, no. It's just that where we get tangled up in the day-to-day -day, in the what's in front of me the emotional responses to what's happening in front of me the interesting and complex analytical solutions that we're trying to create and, and we just forget the the importance and the value of taking it up a notch um yeah. but it is critical it's a critical component i think you know in that story you've just described hopefully that leader now can clearly see 
those problems that we're spending all our time on, they get solved by motivated, empowered, autonomous, smart people. I don't have to do all of that with my group of five people in the exec team, right? Yeah. We have to do some of that. But actually what we're trying to do is scale our impact. Mm. How do we do that? We'll give people clarity about where we're going, why it's important, give them the tools they need, hire competent people, obviously, and 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 enable their creative juices, their commitment, their analytical capacities to solve the problems that need to be solved yep. rather than treating everything like a, you know, like a, I think my, my good friend Francois has got a good metaphor. He says often people, the metaphor of an organization historically has been an engine. You know, we've got to keep the engine running and we're looking at the parts and we're trying to figure out which parts are going to need to be fixed and so on. Versus thinking about an organization like a garden. Yep. That needs to be nurtured and looked after and, and tended to from time to time. But it's not a mechanical yep. machine that we need to be tinkering with. It's it's more about the conditions we create for this garden to grow. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and you've mentioned clarity a couple of times. And um, we at one, we had a kind of a survey was around it was looking at team alignment and it focused on two key areas clarity was one and the other was commitment mm -hmm. because what we established was that high functioning teams have a high level of clarity but beyond that there's an absolute commitment and what we discovered in the surveys that we used to do was that most people will acknowledge that the company was pretty good on the clarity piece because their communication strategies were designed to provide clarity around what we're doing, why, you know, why it matters, et cetera, et cetera. But very little was done to engage the people at this, at this level we're talking about, right? Yes, it was the, uh, the hygiene factors. We'll give you nice facilities. If you want a stand-up desk, you can have that. Yeah, and if, if you're someone who's... Um, body thermometer is different to everyone else's, then we'll provide you with your own little devices to keep you warm or cold, or whatever else. So companies do a great job of that. But the missing piece is, and so this person that I'm working with on Friday, we've now agreed, because I'm, I've come to understand, better late than never, I suppose, that with the best intentions in the world, people will not do the things that they acknowledge are going to be helpful and productive. So she knows that by me engaging with my team on the basis of another day done where we've helped people get closer to freedom of choice. Yeah. We should celebrate that. She knows that she's not going to remember to do that. So we've agreed she has to have a diary card, yep. virtual or otherwise. Uh, if it's important enough to do it, then make yourself a note. And one day you will, you will no longer need it, right? It'll become habit. But till that day, don't rely on your instincts or don't rely on your feelings. And I remember this happened to me with the company I was working with. There was a, a very introverted in, in the world of disc, high C guy managing a team. He was he was in the legal, he managed a legal team. And when he first came to the program, he just couldn't see the point of all this bloody human relations stuff, right? And at the end of it, he said, look, I can see that this would make a difference, but I just don't know how I do it because it's not comfortable for me. 
and we were I was trying very hard to find a solution and one of his mates in the group said uh you're pretty disciplined aren't you and he said yeah of course he said well if you made a diary card to remind yourself to go around once a week and ask people how their weekend was or you know if you know they play sport how the sport uh do you reckon you could do that and he said if that's a task i can do it and so he created the card there and then because he was two months later when i saw him i said so how's it going he said he said good i said so how's the diary card going and he had it he took it out and he tore it up i thought he's going to say what a waste of time and he said um now nah, i'm tearing it up because i don't need it anymore he said two things firstly it's easy for me to do now and he said but what's better is that i'm actually discovering things about my people i never knew he said the only uncomfortable thing for me now is that they're asking things about me and i'm not sure i want to share <laughs> so um, uh, that's a, a wonderful e example about um two things uh one is we need to get deliberate about these changes they're not just going to happen by themselves another wonderful saying that our colleague rob these things are easy to do they're just a little bit easier not to do them love that i love that yeah <laughs> and, and with in the, in the politest way possible i just want to acknowledge the wealth of experience you've got brad because if you've been talking to somebody who's still using diary cards and then physically ripping something up that tells me you've been in this game for a very long time <laughs> you draw an awful lot of experience there so there may be some value in encouraging people to use paper because there was a study I read just a little bit about the other day and it was to do with to-do lists. Yeah. And there was sufficient evidence in the study to suggest that the physical paper-based to-do list had a much higher um, positive outcome than a virtual list. Well, I think that's a whole other podcast because I've been using um, these agile scrum boards, Kanban boards, they're called, which I would argue can be done on paper with sticky notes. Um, but there's a bunch of software out there that I think when you talk about motivation, I think this might be a part two on motivation for us. I'll talk you through it all. You're using mm -hmm. Kanban boards to to actually drive motivation in a team and orchestrate work effectively. Um but we, we should probably wrap it up, I reckon, Brad, as we've been going a little while. How fast did that go? <laughs> that was great, wasn't it? I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. But look, I, I have to meet this Rob guy at some point. Well, when he, he's in the UK now, when he's back, I'll I'll uh, I'll be sure to get us all together. Yes. And we'll maybe I'll get us on the same podcast. How about that? Maybe we should just do a, a podcast, the three of us. <laughs> That'll be fun. That'd be fun. All right. Thanks a lot, Brad. I'll stop the recording and um, and yeah, we'll see you at the next one. Cool.